Eight minutes after 10 a.m., you are listening to The Talking Point. My name is Oliver Dixon, standing in for Kathy Mutlachana. When you go to court for as an aggrieved person and you're seeking remedy in court, sometimes it matters how quickly you receive that remedy. Sometimes it matters how quickly a dispute uh, is settled. There's a famous saying, justice delayed is justice denied. That means that sometimes if a judgment takes too long to come out, the justice is denied. There's a very famous case that breaks my heart each time I think about it. Uh, I, it's called the Hilton College, or it's called the Hilton case. It relates to um, land land ownership and very, very specifically uh, about farm workers who live in the Hilton College area um, who had a legitimate claim in this is in case that we had a legitimate claim to the land. They were called um, labor tenants, right? Um, they stayed on the land because they were workers on the farm. They put in a land claim, and the land claim ultimately, over a period of 20 years, was approved. But while the court litigation was going on, the people who initiated the case all died because they became old and they died. By the time the court gave them relief, they were not alive to enjoy that relief. So this is why time matters. In the latest reserved judgment report uh, for the Chief Justice, over 150 judgments have been reserved over for over six months. In fact, there are over 830 judgments who, that remain reserved, dating as far back as 2012. What does this mean? It means the case has been argued means the parties have made their submissions a judge has to evaluate the submissions and issue a judgment it means that the the parties involved have done all they had to do it's up to the courts to now decide 830 judgments dating as far back as 2012 why on earth is that the case i mean some of the reasons are intuitive our courts are overburdened but what does that even mean Alison Tilly, who's the head of Judges Matter, is with us this morning. Alison, good morning. Good morning. I don't know if you've ever been a litigating party in anything in court. I'm assuming you have been. Judges Matter seems to be an amicus in various instances. What's the longest you've waited for a judgment? Well, the the, the role I play with, with Judges Matter, I guess we've had uh, amicus applications, but um, certainly in my, my former life as an attorney, um, you can wait for for a very long time um, with applications and 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 trials for for a decision. The, the idea was that the the courts would have some kind of benchmark against which to work, and that's something that was uh, Chief Justice McQueen uh, was very concerned about, and often asked in JSC interviews, um, you know, if people had judgments outstanding for longer than three months. They would be, you know, questioned quite closely on why that was the case. Yeah. But it's certainly recently become more of a feature. Yeah. That certainly came up quite a lot in the last round of um, interviews before the uh, Justice uh, Judicial Services Commission. Um, and it seems that a lot of the judges that answered the question made the argument uh, that I have too much on my plate. Is it true? Is it the case that judges have too much to deal with? Well, you know, I think it is. Um, it, it, it always feels like we have a lot of judges, but we only have about 340 of them. And when I say about, that's because they're, they're often acting judges who are being drawn in because they're not enough permanently appointed judges. So a judge president will say, look, you know, I need, I need an extra two or three judges this month. And then, and then there will be practitioners who advocates for lawyers will come in and then work as a judge uh, to try and help relieve the load. But um, there, are, there are a few judges and, and, and a lot of cases, and especially in the bigger divisions, uh, but I understand the workload to be really, really, you know, it, it's a lot and it's high pressure and you, you obviously you can't get it wrong. Uh, so so it's, it's probably... There's definitely a combination of, of too much uh, litigation for the number of 
of judges mm. and the full number of courts we have. Mm. 200 and something odd judges is a very low number for a population of 60 million people. Right, and and I think what you've, you've also got to remember is that some of those judges are then in the appellate courts, so yeah. they're not even seeing the first round uh, in matters. They're only seeing it when it goes on appeal to the FDA or appeal to the, the Constitutional Court. How many judges do we have at high court level? That includes all of the judges. That's the number that we have for the judiciary across the country. Wow. It seems, so there's a lot to talk about here, right? And, and, and what are the different mechanisms that can be employed to ensure that certain courts don't have such a high burden? The introduction of specialized courts, for instance, mm-hmm. um, was seemingly a step towards that, right? To take the burden off of certain courses, uh, courts, but also to improve the level of adjudication that happens in specialized instances. Um, but also the introduction of tribunals uh, seem to have been to achieve the same thing, right? The Labour Tribunal um, seems to be introduced, seem to have been introduced so that the Labour Court doesn't carry as much a burden. Yet the Labour Court has one of the highest counts of reserved judgments. Is that system working? Well, I think it is is somewhat overwhelmed. Um, I think if you go into into the, the system at the level of the CCMA, there are really more cases than... And the CCMA can handle, um, and then the, the the problem just goes up the chain. <clears throat> As you say, the this idea that you have specialist courts uh, who will you know really be able to deal with matters more quickly because it's an area that they specialize in. We've got a lot of uh, of courts like that. Not well, a lot. That's perhaps overstating it, but we we have been trying that as a as a way of managing. Um, the load, but certainly even when it comes to the Constitutional Court, which is only supposed to see, you know, a few cases that are really important mm. and develop the jurisprudence, they're seeing uh, more cases than, than they'd anticipated because mm. they're now the court, the apex court. Mm. Do we need a smaller Constitutional Court bench so that we can have two benches sitting separately to speed things up? Uh, that That's one option. I think I would be more in favor of trying to restrict the number of cases going to the court, which sounds bad because it sounds like, oh, it's limiting, you know, justice and people getting access to courts. But there's a lot of uh, stuff going to the constitutional court, which, which really shouldn't be there. So just as an example, these applications for rescission of judgments in the constitutional court, you know, it shouldn't be there. Mm. Um, they've been rejected every time. They're not going to be allowed. It's just... Yeah, so know. does uh, the application for leave to appeal take up a lot of time, even if it doesn't make it to appeal? Um, and is that something that maybe we need a separate filtering system from, for, away from the constitutional court judges? I think they would they would resist that, and I, I think they'd be right, because one of the the key things that the, the constitutional court does get to say is what matters it, it hears, what matters it's prepared to accept direct access on, and then you know whether or not it's it's going to grant leave to appeal. So there's definitely uh, something that, that the court uses to try and make sure that it focuses its energy on the more important cases. Yeah, and and. The, the other ones back down to, to the FDA or the High Court. Yeah. Give us a call, 086-000-2032, 086-000-2032. What is on your mind about this conversation? Uh, what's been your experience uh, through the court system, especially if you've been uh, gone through the entire appellate system in this country? Do you feel like you waited extraordinarily long, or were you lucky enough to get a judgment in good time? Um, and do you feel that uh, our courts are fine as they are? Give us that call, 086-000-2032. I'm also taking your WhatsApp voice notes on 0614-104-107. Tweet me at Oliver underscore speaking. Uh, I'm also on Facebook, Oliver Dixon, as we have this conversation with Alison Tilly, who is the head of Judges Matter. 830 judgments remain reserved, dating as far back as 2012. Ellison, I, yeah, what do I do if I have a case 
wait am I, I'm awaiting judgment from say mm. the high court right and the case was argued and completed in 2012 for instance um it's 2022 mm. 10 years later and I'm still waiting for a judgment is there relief that I can apply for well there are a couple of things you can do um the, the, the first one is usually to go to the head of that court so in a let's say in a high court that would be the judge president of that court and you would ask the judge president for an indication as to when the decision will be handed down um the, the judge president can't they don't they're not the sort of managers of the judges in their division <clears throat> so sometimes they can call a judge in and you know um, discipline them for not producing a judgment on time it's very much the judge president president in, in a division is the first among equals so so that sometimes doesn't work um but then after that and if you haven't had your decision within three months and certainly within six months, you would then be able to make a complaint with the Judicial Services Commission uh, and say that the you know the, the decision is delayed. Lawyers don't like doing that. They worry that if they do something like that it will be, you know, perceived as, as an aggressive, hostile move on the part of the judge writing the decision. And, and they don't want to upset that judge because obviously they want the decision to go in their favour. So it's it's a bit tricky, um, but but that is that is theoretically something. It, why is why is that something for the lawyers to decide? I mean, I'm I'm the litigant. I'm the you know the aggrieved person. I'm making I'm giving the instruction. Surely I can instruct my lawyer to go and chase down this judgment. You you can, but. Um, for a lot of litigants, they will be in a position where they're going to be advised by their lawyer and they'll take that advice. Right. So if they say, listen, let's not go and hassle, you know, judge blogs because if we do, you know, they might write a, a decision that goes against us. I mean, I think you'd, you'd probably be like, okay. I think when it gets to... Judges aren't irrational people, right, that are vindictive and will suddenly write a judgment just because... a judgment against you just because you, you told them to hurry up. Exactly. Um, judges have to have quite a thick skin. Um, they're often... Well, they always are lawyers who've come through the system, so they've spent many years, um, you know, fighting with each other and fighting with their clients, and it's kind of a default... Thing for, for, for lawyers to be fighting with each other. So, yeah, I, I wouldn't be as concerned, I think, as, as people sometimes are. I think judges um, know that people need their judgments. They're waiting for their judgments. They're anxious about mm. the outcome. They, they, they know they need to, to get them out. So I, I, I think most judges don't have an issue with it. Yeah. Uh, just another thing that um, I, you know, that I just want to touch on. It's whether or not a delay impacts the quality of the judgment. You know, in, in his book, uh, All Rise, uh, former Deputy Chief Justice uh, Dehang Museneke writes very beautifully about the rhythm he went into when it came to writing judgments. And he said what he often preferred to do was write judgments uh, as quickly after the case as possible because the memory of the facts and the arguments are still fresh and he doesn't have to rely entirely on the notes he took Um but it also the fact that you can rely on, on easily accessible memory means that you you write the judgment better, faster, um, and often in great detail. If I have to think back to the facts of a judgment of a case as a judge from ten years ago, right, or from eight seven years ago, my memory would have faded, right. That means that even my notes may not necessarily be good enough for that. Um, and I may not write as good a judgment as I ordinarily would have if I wrote it a few weeks after the fact. So my question uh -huh. is, do, do we see a disparity in the quality of judgments depending on how long it took for that judgment to come out? Well, I, I think the the argument the judge has given the, in the JSC when they're asked about this is that if you have a particularly complicated case, um, there's, there can be a situation where you'll have to go and, and look at you know, the, the the case law on the matter, you'll have to do that research. And it's not something you can do, you know, very quickly if it's a very complex matter. You can also have matters which have a lot of facts 
without a speaker, then you've got to make a whole lot of factual findings before you can even get to the law and, and how the law is applied. Um, one of the other things that happens is where judges sit, uh, where it's two of them, um, you can have, or even three, you can have a situation where, you know, you were sitting on the matter, but the other judge is what they call the scribe, so they kept the the, the book um, on mm. the uh, on the case, and then that judge may become ill, and then you know you have to send your judgment to them, and they're not available. So there's there's various things that that can go wrong, but in general, yes, judges are very much. You know, ask them and they're very much in favor of trying to get a decision off as quickly as possible, both because of the, the, the reasons that um, Justice Mossenacker points out, but also just because they do want the litigants to, to get the answer that they've come to court for. Mm. Uh, give us a call, 86 0 taking your WhatsApp voice notes on 0614-104-107. Just maybe a, a, a theme I want us to explore now, Alison, before we go to the to the headline break, is why do we have such few judges? Do we not have a big enough talent pool? Do we not have enough willing people? Or do we not have enough money to pay more judges? So with the money of your... <laughs> Um, the 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 way the the system works is that each division will have a certain number of positions, and they will fill those positions. There's generally a need for more than the number that that are there permanently appointed, and that's where, as I say, you bring in acting judges who who then will uh, you know help with with the workload. It does seem that uh, there aren't enough judges and certainly uh, Justice Mosinaka is responsible for a process now which is trying to figure out you know, exactly where the courts should be and whether we've got the courts in the right places and I imagine that the, the number of judges per court is, is going to come up um, but it, it certainly it's not um, you know, it's not for want of, of qualified people although sometimes when the JSC sits and dozen appointments that they won't be able to find somebody for a position, and then they'll have to, um, you know, re-advertise and, and go again. So that does happen, but I, I don't think that's an indication that they're not enough good people. I think it's just sometimes that, you know, in a particular division, you don't have an application that really meets the JSC standards. So, you know, that's always going to be something you take into account. Yeah. Uh, and when it comes to development in the talent pool typically judges come out of practice right uh, you had an extensive illustrious career as an advocate um, and perhaps think that it's time to give service to the national duty mm. um, and therefore become a judge right oftentimes they would have made more money as as an, a practicing attorney as an advocate than they would as a judge but they still decide to take the job nonetheless what can we do to attract more people to the bench well, I think you, you correctly look at the, the the sort of pool of people from whom the judges are appointed because that's, you know, you've got to have a good, deep pool of candidates who, you know, who are both uh, representative in, in terms of race and gender, but also uh, really are able to bring constitutional values um, to the courts, able to apply the law correctly. And um, we now take from advocates, but also some attorneys and increasingly magistrates uh, as, as people who, who must come through and, and serve as judges. I think the, the, difficulty, <coughs> sorry, the difficulty for um, certain magistrates and, and magistrates being appointed is that um, they don't do the same professional exams that attorneys and advocates do. So if you're an advocate, you do pupillage. If you're an attorney, you'll write the, uh, the sidebar exam. Mm. But if you're a magistrate, um, you know, you come in with your basic law degree and then, you know, you spend a number of years getting experience. And if you are very experienced and very senior, um, you know, I think, I think we'd all absolutely agree that that's, that's sufficient qualification. But there is a discussion now about, you know, what 
what really what qualifications should magistrates have uh, if they are to move on um, to the bench in order to ensure that we have you know the the, the best uh, possible candidates who who really put themselves forward for the bench. Yeah, what is being done to overcome that skills and knowledge gap from transitioning from a magistrate to a judge? If I took my LLB degree, went and became a magistrate at my local division. Um, Surely the, the, there's a limited amount of legal issues I would be exposed to, typically ones that aren't particularly complex. Uh, so no matter how much experience I have in the issues that I adjudicate upon, they're never going to be particularly complex to the point where I build up experience enough to become a high court judge, right? Well, yes and no. I think that, that the, the complexity is not often not the reason that it goes to the large courts or the or the high court, it's it's how much is at stake. So it's, it's literally you know how many rounds and things are involved. I think that if you if you look at the the issues around training for magistrates, what often happens is that a magistrate will get uh, I nearly said stuck, but uh, not stuck. But a magistrate will become an expert in criminal law matters. So you'll sit in the criminal courts and by the time you finish, you know everything about mens rea and dolus eventualis and all, mm. all the rest of it. But you won't have sat in the civil court. So now if you go to the bench, what happens? Because as a judge, you will have to deal with civil and criminal matters. And that's the sort of problem that I think the judiciary are now trying to work out because historically we really took judges from the, the ranks of advocates. You knew that they'd done their pupillage and, and you also, judges knew advocates because they came from the ranks of yeah. advocates. Yeah. So you, you knew, you know, you knew people, you knew their strengths, you knew their weaknesses, but the system is different now so we have to adapt. Yeah. Give us a call. The number is 86 2032 Taking your WhatsApp voice notes on 614 107. It's 10.30. Time for your news headlines with Anne Musa. It is just after half past 10 this morning and we're talking about caseload reserve, caseloads and judgments reserved. What's been your experience in the South African court system? 830 judgments remained reserved, some of them dating as far back as 2012 uh, with the, you know, with courts such as the Peter Maritzburg High Court, as well as the Cape Town Labour Court leading the pack in terms of reserved judgments. Why are those courts standing out? That's an important question. But overall, why do we have so many reserved judgments? 830 judgments is a lot. Alison Tilly, who's with us, who's the head of Judges Matters, has given us a range of answers, sketching out really what the playing field looks like and what causes some of these delays. Uh, but what's your thoughts? What's your experience? What's your questions? What's your comments? Give us a call, 086-000-2032. And you can also send us a WhatsApp voice note on 0614-104-107. William in George and Gabelo in Durban, I'm going to come to you very shortly. I'd like us to start with a couple of voice notes that we had received uh, on the WhatsApp voice note line relating to this conversation. Olivia, you know, when it comes to the courts, I, I have lost faith. I, I have a case against the government, um, an unfair dismissal case, since 20, 2014, November 2014. Till to date, I haven't got the date from Labour Court in, 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 in Bramfontein, Johannesburg. So for me, when it comes to courts and, and justice in South Africa, uh, I don't. I, I don't. I don't have any trust. I've lost completely. I've lost trust completely. And uh, mind you, in the system, I am still appearing as a person who's working. So everywhere I try to look for a job, it appears that I'm working. So that's one of the things that you know what this government and the justice system really it needs to change. Thank you, Charlie from Newcastle. Uh, look, Oliver, again, this is anonymous in Cape Town. Regarding this issue, you are talking about courts and all. Look, all the courts, all the courts of South Africa, they are not uh, uh, partial. They are not independent. Why am I saying this? Look, Jacob Zuma was winning each and every case 
when he was a president of the ANC. As soon as he left that seat, the courts are all on top of him. Now Ramaphosa is the president of the ANC. The courts are not doing anything. Uh, uh, whatever complaint is laid against him, they are not doing it. They are defending him. As soon as he left that seat, the courts will, will be against him and they will be on top of him. So they are not doing their job. They are captured, actually. Uh, Dixon, this is Peter, the truck driver. Actually, this principle, or this famous, as you call it, famous, uh, that says you are innocent before proven guilty. You know, that is the, another thing that it delays these cases. You know, all these cases of Zuma is because he's at home. If he was uh, detained at the custody, these cases could have been pushed by everybody that, you know, he must, uh, uh, must be out, he must be out. So you can see, or no, this thing of proven guilty, proven innocent before, I, this thing is wrong. <laughs> That's quite hilarious. You can't detain somebody on a matter that doesn't have a verdict. <laughs> That's a violation of the human rights. What if the verdict comes out and says this person's not guilty? Now you detain them for years. And then what? You've taken some of their life away from them. Dora in Johannesburg. Good morning. Hello. Hi, Dora. Oh, Nora. No, yes. Nora. So, my, no, my apologies, Nora. Go ahead. Thank you very much. affected uh, by this delayed judgment. Mm. From 2013, I'm expelled at the Department of Health that was holding my money, my salary. <laughs> Ooh, not not your 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 lines cutting quite a bit over there I can't seem to make out what you're saying can you slow down and then start again oh let's see if we can get not on a better line this so, yeah not your lines cutting in and out uh, I can't make out anything you're saying at the moment I, yeah I'm gonna go out and blame load shedding because that typically happens when load shedding is taking place William in George good morning morning, Oliver, and your guest there in the studio. Now, let me just uh, put this disclaimer. This is not a political question, but a judicial one. Um, I think it's about a year and three months ago that the Constitutional Court found former President Zuba guilty and, and sentenced him. And then he immediately, I think, took it on review. And the Constitutional Court then met very urgently. But as far as I know, and I must have missed something, uh, there has been no pronouncement uh, regarding the review as yet in a, more, in a matter so important. Um, if there has been no pronouncement yet, why, why in such an important case uh, would there be a delay? My, my recollection, William, is that... Right after the Constitutional Court judgment that sentenced Zuma to, was it 18 months imprisonment? That was the end of it. Uh, the court never met and was never, uh, you know, uh, petitioned to consider this issue again, at least the Constitutional Court. Zuma went to jail. Zuma got released from jail on medical parole. And what is being challenged now in court is the medical parole. A high court judgment came out recently. That court judgment is being appealed, apparently. And it might way, make its way all the way to the Constitutional Court once again. Only then will the Constitutional Court uh, be invited to consider this matter again. But after the sentencing judgment, that, that was it. I, I seem to remember that there was... Oh, yeah, there was a rumor that the court was going to meet at midnight and consider this. No, that never happened. Oh, It, it was misreporting. Okay, okay. Yeah. okay. Yeah. okay. No, no. Thanks for the clarity. Yeah. Th thank you so much for that, William, out in George. Okay. okay. Cabello in Durban, good morning. How are you? I'm fantastic, sir. Go ahead. Uh, I think uh, the court is the most corrupt institution in our country. It's the most corrupt institution that you can ever, ever find in our country. When the judgments are not in the interest of the politician. It will lie there for more than 10 years, even 15 years. They don't care. But if the judgment is in the interest of some politicians that are in favor of the court or judges, within one month or two weeks, the judgment is out. Let me uh, put you in the 
on record here, Oliver. The, the Constitutional Court on that matter that a uh, lot of uh, uh, listeners are complaining about. Firstly, the Constitutional Court has got no jurisdiction to send anyone in jail. That's number one. Number two, the case is impending in the lower court, which is a not Houghton uh, court. But a constitution that did not concede that complaint that is lying there, even today, those complaints, it's not been attended where President Zuma complained and says, a, 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 a chair of the committee must be recused himself. Even today, we're still waiting for the judgment. Number three, Oliver, the same court says the public protectors remedial action abandoned. Not so long ago, the same court says, no, the public protectors remedially uh, are not binding. Now, before that, Oliver, let me say the yesterday judgment. The yesterday judgment says, the public protector in the court, they say, the, the court of ethics for the parliament is constitutional. But yesterday, the constitutional court says, no, it's not constitutional. What is that, Oliver? What, sorry, what yesterday who said what? Sorry, sorry, yesterday who said what? They said, the eth- uh, 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 I mean, that, that, that court, uh, executive court of ethics yes. are, are, are unlawful and unconstitutional. Yes. Yesterday, the ethics court. But before that, when President Zuma was a president, they said it is uh, uh, constitutionally unlawful. But yesterday, it's not. Why, Oliver? What is happening in our country? What is wrong with our judiciary? What is long, wrong, wrong? It's important. So, Gabriel, let's pause there. And I, I want to bring I want to bring uh, um, Ellison in here, but I, I want to give the first jab at the specifically to the last point you're making. It's important to separate personality from the matter, right? Uh, because if you think it's about the personalities, you're often distorting the legal issues at play. Yesterday's judgment uh, reflected for the very first time on disclosures. Uh, being declared uncons- uh, that as far as financial interests being disclosed insofar as the code of ethics does not reflect the need for that to happen it is unconstitutional i do not recall a time under zuma's time uh, where the executive ethics codes constitutionalities pertaining to the very specific narrow issue about disclosing financial interests was challenged and if it I did uh, then it, did it get to the constitutional court? If it did, it should have been reflected upon in the judgment. It wasn't because it was never quite a constitutional challenge that's ever happened before, right? Mm. Remember, this particular case was sparked by the 500,000 500, rand donation that Ramaphosa received from Bosasa. That's what sparked this particular matter. But, uh, so I do think you need to separate the, part, the, the personalities from the case. However, you do raise an important question around whether, why do courts move quicker on certain cases than on others, especially where it's seemingly politicized cases or cases where it involves people with a lot of money? That's an important question. Um, Alison, is that a true reflection of what is happening? And if so, why is that the case? Well, I think um, different cases uh, involve uh, different levels of complexity. Some cases are brought urgently. Normally, you have to wait in line to get a date, but um, there are certain circumstances in which you can go to a court and say, look, for these really important reasons, I need to jump the queue, and the court will will sometimes accept that and and, and allow you to be heard sooner. Um, I think think certainly what's very frustrating for everybody is where cases drag on. And drag on and drag on and drag on, and it's it's it is infuriating. I think one of the things that we do have to remember is that although we call it the Stalingrad strategy, it, it makes it sound like it's it's a it's a bad thing. Um, people are entitled to vindicate their rights, so they are entitled to appeal decisions. They're entitled to um, you know make sure that every aspect of the case has been properly decided. But one of the risks that you run and i think we're seeing that where you do have uh delays after delay is that people start losing confidence in the whole system and they start thinking that judges are deliberately dragging their feet they're not dealing with matters quickly um that people are losing cases because you know the judges are against them whereas if you if you go and you make a bad case if you decide to take something on appeal and it's not 
really going to be properly appealable, you are going to lose. And all that's going to happen is it's going to be a delay. But I think what we also know is that for some people, delay is preferable. Yeah. They'd rather have delay than a decision. And then it starts reflecting on the judges and people start saying, well, this delay is because, you know, the judges are bought, the judges are corrupt, the judges have been paid off. If there is any evidence of that, I think, you know, we'd, we'd all be really interested to see if that was the case. I don't think it is the case. I don't think there is any evidence that, that our judges um, are captured. Um, there are certainly disciplinary matters going on where there are judges who have been suspended and, and those are being investigated. But at this point, um, it's, you know, it, it, to suggest that because of the litigants asking for delays, that that delay is in the judge's fault, I, think, I don't think that's fair. Yeah, that's a very important uh, point to make. Uh, JJ out in Kempton Park, good morning. For me, thank you for taking my call. For me, even, uh, I want to commend with regards to our justice system in terms of operation, fairness, lack of justice. I had the personal experience, the element of delay, uh, delays even relatives. Now you find out, Chair, to say, we don't know whether the Chief Justice, the operational level, at the operational level, you find that the delays file are getting lost. So I may tend to agree with the element. Some other people are saying that now there is element of corruption because some lawyers, some lawyers that some we know who say that cases are being bought. Yeah, they can buy a case is winning. But all in all, in the country, indeed, our justice system is the one letting 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 the, uh, the citizen down. If you don't have money. It's not. It's don't have money. Indeed, you won't, you won't get justice. Yeah. Okay. Yes. Thank you so much for that, uh, Addison. It, it, it's almost irresistible to conclude that having money helps you when it comes to litigating, right? Um, oh, this is of, this is often why people who get to the constitutional court are people with money. It costs a lot of money. Money has a role yep. to play in justice. It does, and, and I think we, we have to recognize that. And it's one of the reasons why, if you are criminally charged, you get a legal aid lawyer. That didn't used to be the case um, many years ago, but the system recognized and the state recognized that that was you know, grossly unfair to have the full might of the state behind the, the, the public prosecutor and you as the defendant having no one uh, to to assist you, so that I think in criminal matters we've tried to to deal with it that way. In labour matters, we've tried to deal with it by excluding uh, lawyers from from the CCMA. So you go in and you you repu- represent yourself, and so does the other party. When it gets to magistrates courts and high courts, there's no doubt about it. In, in civil matters, that it tremendously advantages you to have a lawyer. Um, and, and almost the, the courts are almost inaccessible if you don't have a lawyer. Uh, certainly going to do high court litigation, I think it's, you know, it's really very, very difficult to do unless you have somebody representing you. And I think there's a big question about access to justice that we do have to ask, which is, is, is it the case that in the high courts, the ordinary person just can't their, their cases hurt them? because it's just too expensive. And that that is obviously very, very troubling and very problematic because those are the cases, as you say, um, you know, the Constitutional Court will be the one who ends up dealing with those. And and to have to rely all the time on pro bono lawyers or public interest yeah. law firms, um, you know, there's certainly not enough of them. So it, it's, it's a serious problem. Yeah. Yeah, that's a very, very important point to make. Uh, let's we continue to take your calls. Um, give us that uh, call, 086-000-2032, We're taking your WhatsApp voice notes on 0614-104-107. We've got Nora back on the line. Nora, let's hope you're on a better line. Uh, go ahead. Can you hear me now? A little bit better. Go ahead, ma'am. Oh, that's better. I'm directly affected. I think that I, um, 
I'm old money from 2000 through the bargaining council, Department of Health. 2013, I was expelled. I went to UI, UIF Labor Department. Nothing happened. No pension, no money, no salary, no hearing. Today, Oliver, I'm, 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 I'm at the labor court. The pro bono lawyers said, I'm not, I'm not deceased. I took pension pure lies by the Department of Health, Oliver. I've got no money, no pension, no UIF to date. The pro bono lawyers expelled me from their office. They said I must not come back to the labor court again. I'm not expelled. I'm given pension. Nothing. I've never been to HR. I've never been to my, for my surveillance packages from Department of Health. To date. To date. To oh date. My goodness. And you, outside <laughs> of the bargaining council, I'm so sorry that happened to you, Nora. My, my sincere apologies. They, they up to up to the commi- two commissioners they depended on department of health lie. That's why I'm I've got no pension, I've got no you I have to date. Yeah. I, I, I'm stressed. Oh I've, I've been to, to I've been to the police, they could not help me. I've got I pro bono lawyers at the constitution and read also deceived me much this year. Yeah. They yeah. Olive to, to, to report case. They are lying. The pro bono lawyers are lying because of the Department of Health liar. Because I only took, within 30 days, I reported my case to the bargaining council, but the commissioner could not understand. I was no submission from the, from the from health department to prove that they gave me pension. And they refused with that so, so those submissions Oliver today. What mm. must I do? Mm. Nora, I'm so sorry that happened to you. Um, it, it it really is very very sad, and I can understand why you feel the way you do. Um, do you wanna do you wanna respond to that, Alison, and reflect perhaps on? Um, I mean, you and I don't know the the exact details mm. of Nora's case, um, and so we can't make a call on that. Um, but often about just how convoluted uh, the system might be for people. Uh, who may not necessarily grasp it all for people who may not necessarily have the resources to challenge it at the highest level and to be able to, um, you know, drown the other party in paperwork, for instance, as would a party mm. that has a lot of money. No, I think, I think as, I, as I was saying, and, and I'm, I'm so sorry the caller um, is obviously in, in some distress, but the, the you know, these the situations do drag on this is really one of the reasons why we need a working system of paralegals across the country um, because this kind of, of case is, is the sort of thing that's difficult for, for lawyers to really deal with because they don't, it's not litigation of the rules, so it's difficult to, to charge fees. And if you can't charge fees, you know, running a, a law firm is a business. Um, what I would say is that there is, there is some assistance through legal aid, and I do have the helpline number or legal aid, if we'd like to uh, to read that out, because you know that that may be somewhere where the caller can get assistance. There is a campaign around unclaimed benefits, uh, where people are not given the benefits that, that they're entitled to, um, and um, you know that that's that's certainly an option for her to to look at. But I think yes, the question of of access to justice is a is a very vexed one. It can't be so that justice yeah. is only for the very rich, um, you know, and that everybody else has to rely on free, free lawyers. How often? How often? How how good is the quality of representation that people get, say, from pro bono or one or other uh, law clinic in, in universities that are often uh, assisting in these spaces as well, mm-hmm. uh, uh, or even civil society organisations that might foot the bill uh, for a litigating party. Um, or legal aid, for instance, how good is that level and that quality of representation? Well, I think with everything it varies, but certainly when I was doing public interest law um, more directly and and acting on behalf of of clients, I think we always remembered what uh, uh, the the late Chief Justice Arthur Chaskelson said to people who were running that kind of 
uh, you know, running that kind of a law firm is that the the client must be able to expect outstanding and excellent work because that's the standard that you expect from people when they work uh, in the public interest. And that was certainly, we, we always felt that we had to, um, you know, really, really do the absolute best that we we could for the clients at the at the highest standard. I know that certainly in in um, legal aid, uh, they they also try very hard to make sure that the standards are are upheld. But as I say, you know, it is it is patchy. There are areas where things just go wrong and people don't show up and they don't do the they don't do the work. Yeah. Um, so that's yeah. It, it's it's always a concern. Yeah. Uh, Mangoba out in Durban. Good morning. Good morning. Um, I just wanted to ask uh, two quick questions which are related to each other. Um, the first one is, what happens if there is a reserve judgment and the, the presiding judge dies during the process? Uh, That's a good question. Judge, yeah, does another judge take over and start all over again with the case or... Uh, they just take off from the notes of the deceased judge. Yeah. And the, the second question is, um, uh, does the JSC or any other body that is responsible for uh, selecting judges take into account any um, pre, pre-existing medical condition uh, an advocate or whoever is the candidate for the judge might have, which might um, in the future impair that person's ability to to do highly um, cognitive work that the judges are required to do because they have to uh, look through all sorts of information and try and, 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 and create a coherent picture and then make a, a rational judgment. Do that's, they take a... into account any condition? For instance, um, let me explain this briefly. If, if any person has a, a stroke, whether it's a uh, ischemic stroke or hemorrhaging stroke, they might be permanently impaired. In mm-hmm. other words, if the judge has, a, um, or if the candidate for the judge has a history of having a stroke or what they call TIA or minor stroke, do they take into account when they select the judge to the yeah. bench um, yeah. whether that person has a medical condition which might impair his or her ability to carry out the work? from the start to the finish of the report and the judgment. That's a beautiful question too. Uh, Edison, I might yeah, want to add... I'll, li- I'll listen to the radio. Yeah, thank you so much for that question, uh, for those two questions, Mangoba. I appreciate it. Edison, I want to add to Mangoba's second question. Uh, it, it's it, Every industry <laughs> seems to be uh, disfavorable of appointing or keeping in, 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 in appointment people who are of advanced age. But it seems to me that on the bench is the only place where we don't see a problem with a 75-year-old presiding over complex issues. Well, I think it's a fascinating area, yes. Um, just to, to, to deal with the question of where, where a judge dies in the, middle of a, in the middle of a case or even at the end of a case where they haven't handed down a decision, um, you do actually have to run the case again. Um, and you can imagine what sort of cost that involves, and I know some attorneys who who ensure against that, so that they, you know, their clients would have would be able to run it again. Um, I'm trying to see if the actual interview. Wait, so if a judge dies, we have to start over? Yeah. Like from from the beginning. From the beginning. I mean, the papers are obviously final, the, the, but the, if if you've had let's say five days in court. And the trial is going to run over ten days, and the judge dies after five days. You'd have to start again at the beginning of the right, five right. Days. But what if we're years into this and we're sort of towards the end of it? Yep, got to got to start it again. My goodness, no, that that seems having, very impractical. Having the judge die on you is terrible. Yes, it's terrible. And and you know, it's a very good question as to you know how are how do you manage the risk to the system of, of judges being ill and 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 dying. And the JSC does ask questions about health. There is a section in the questionnaire which deals with health and you need to disclose any pre existing conditions you have yeah. that might cause you to not be able to stay on the bench because of you know, people are very aware that this is 
this is a real, if it happens, it's a real problem. Yeah. It really, really is. My goodness. Let's take one last voice note as we close off uh, the show just to reflect on. Good morning, Oliver. Good morning, listeners of Radio SAFM. And good morning, I think Alison is your name, yeah. Alison, it's not only a point to make that capital is playing a role in courts. It's playing a heavy role. So which means that our poor people, the poorest of the poor, does not benefit at all. Even this legal resource centers must be bring out to rural areas to assist us. They, they need to look into the whole court system and the money, consultation monies that lawyers ask. It's ridiculous. So please uh, do something about it. Just don't only recognize it, but do something about it. Maria April Springbokken in Northern Cape. Thank you. Alison, in 30 seconds, to answer Maria's question, are lawyers too expensive to the exclusion of the majority of the population? Lawyers are definitely too expensive, um, which is why we need a much more functional system of of paralegals and, and legal aid needs to be... Do we not need again. price regulators, maybe? Well, there is, there is to some extent that in place because um, you can only claim from the other side the the costs that you've incurred that, that meet a tariff. So there's a there's a way of managing that. Yeah. But I think we, we have to remember that courts have been involved in, in many, many things that poor people are very deeply concerned with, healthcare, housing, um, you know, the freedom to demonstrate, yeah. uh, freedom of expression. There's just so many areas of the law that are very, very important for poor people. And I think it's, you know, when we can only keep advocating for access, for access to justice and, yeah. uh, at all levels. Absolutely. Thank you so much for your time, Alison. Really, really do appreciate it. Alison Tilly, the head of Judges Matter, as we reflected on the sheer staggering amount of reserved judgments uh, in our court system. 830 judgments remain reserved, dating as far back as 2012.